All right, that's it. So let's dive into Revelation. We've been in our Hope Rising series for a few weeks now. I think this is week number seven. And um, in this series, uh, we're looking to uncrazy the book of Revelation. And uh, boy, do we have our work cut out for us this morning. Um, and so here's the deal about Revelation. I'm not going to, you know, all the previous sermons are online. Go listen to them at the church website, livinghopedixon.com. <coughs> um, I'm not going to do too much of a review this morning. I just want to kind of jump in. But, but let me say this about Revelation. Revelation is a book that um, was written to, uh, you know, in the first century. Uh, it was written to a bunch of persecuted churches, a bunch of Christians who were being persecuted primarily by the Roman Empire, but also by a lot of Jewish uh, religious leaders as well. And, uh, and so they were, there was just heavy, heavy persecution to the point that they were being locked up. They were being jailed. They were being beaten. Uh, many times they were being killed uh, for their faith. And, uh, and, and if, I mean, just try to mentally put yourself right there for just a moment and imagine that that's where we are as a church, where we, don't, we no longer have the luxury of coming to a, a building that has a giant sign on the outside that says Living Hope Church. Instead, we're meeting secretly uh, because it's, it, our faith is now illegal. And we're meeting secretly. And if we get caught... Uh, living out our faith, if we get caught worshiping together, if we get caught sharing our faith with someone else, uh, then there's a very strong chance we would go to jail. Uh, or, or, and after we get there, there's a very strong chance we would be beaten. And there's still, in some areas of the world, uh, a very strong chance that we might even be killed because we chose to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Put your mind there for, for just a second. And, and, and try to get a grasp on the people that John here was writing to <clears throat> with this book of Revelation. He had, God gives him this vision of things to come. And it's a vision meant to build up and encourage this um, kind of beaten down church. A church that was thriving and that was growing, but I'm sure emotionally was just taking a beating. Just taking a beating. And physically, by the way. Physically. Um, this is who John writes to. And, and now he doesn't send, he doesn't have the luxury of sending an, an email. He didn't have the luxury of, you know, of, um, you know, whatever kind of private correspondence or anything. Instead, these letters are hand delivered by mail carriers brought to, as, as we know, as we've talked about before, seven, seven different churches in seven different cities. And then eventually dispersed throughout the whole church to where we still have it today. Thank God. Um, so, Knowing that your correspondence is, uh, is probably going to be intercepted, knowing that somebody's probably going to break the seal on those letters and, and read them uh, anyway and see what's going on here, um, John uses, and, and Jesus through John, uses uh, what we call apocalyptic literature. And this apocalyptic literature is very intentionally symbolic, very intentionally kind of kind of this large, grandiose, epic language used to describe what God has been doing in the world, what, what's going to happen, what's gonna, what God is going to continue to do in the world. <coughs> and, um, and so part of the reason for that cryptic language is knowing that these letters might be intercepted. Now, there's other, part, there's other reasons there too, but that's one part of it, okay? Uh, Jamie and I uh, have a, a, a friend that for years and years and years, I don't know how many, 20 or 30 years now, she has been uh, kind of undercover in China teaching English. 
undercover in, in China te- teaching English. I don't know if you're aware of that, but there are uh, um, Christian teachers who will go to China as kind of undercover missionaries, and they will teach English to Chinese people and, and look for very discreet opportunities to share their faith and draw people into the faith because some forms of public faith are illegal in China. I know things have changed in China over the years, but still, even still, it's very heavily regulated. Um, and so when we would write letters of encouragement to our friend in China, there was a system that we had to use. We couldn't just say anything and everything in those letters because just like the first century, strong chance those letters are going to be intercepted and read. And so when we would write these letters, uh, we would say things like, uh, instead of referring to Jesus in our letters, we would say our mutual friend, our mutual friend, or instead of saying, I'll be praying for you, we would say something like, you'll be in my thoughts. You'll be in my thoughts. And there was this kind of code that we would use to speak back and forth to one another to, uh, to communicate, uh, you know, messages about our faith and the encouragement and that sort of thing. And I think there's a little bit of that going on, actually a lot of that going on in, in the book of Revelation. So this is kind of where we pick up. And, and we're, we're starting with chapter 12 today, Revelation chapter 12. Flip all the way to the back of your Bible and look for Revelation and then look for chapter 12. And, um, and so uh, here is where we get into a section that is, might be the most well-known slash notorious section of, the whole, of all of Revelation because Hollywood loves this section of Revelation. They love it. There's a whole sub-genre of horror movies based on uh, antichrists and all kinds of things like this. And, and uh, here's where we dive into the number 666. And, and here's, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so there's just all this, you know, stuff that you've heard, that you've seen portrayed in movies. And, and, and again, like has been our practice throughout this whole series, I want you to take for a moment and take everything you think you know about the book of Revelation and set it to the side. And let's, let's explore for just a moment that maybe... Maybe biblical scholars know more about the Bible than Hollywood directors. Just maybe. Just maybe. Okay? Now, one of the very first horror movies I remember seeing as a kid was The Omen. Anybody see The Omen? Really? Three of you? That's it. You're liars. You're all liars. Uh, and so, yeah, The Omen, it was, it was, it's a creepy... I don't know why my parents showed me The Omen at the age of, like, six. I don't know why they did that. That is a horrible misstep in parenting. I'm just going to say that. I don't know if they thought this would be some sort of theological lesson for me or what. But, and, you know, my, my parents, you know, pastored churches. And I, I, but for whatever reason, I was like, what are you watching? We're watching this scary movie called The Omen. Sit down, son. And, and so we would, we, I watched that a few times. And it is a genuinely horrifying. I think it still holds up pretty well today. It's a horrifying movie. And, um, and, and it, I mean, it is all about revelation chapter 13 it's all about that whole thing you know the the you know the, all this spooky stuff that that kind of comes in and so what i want to do again is is dive in we're going to dive into this passage we're going to do our best to uncrazy uh and and unravel the mess that that you know has been built up now some of you love this stuff you love this stuff. You love looking for antichrist and you love checking your kid's scout for a 666 because surely they're, they're possessed in some way. Uh, you love all this kind of stuff. And you tell them you're checking for license. We know what you're really checking for. Uh, <laughs> and so you, you like, you, you just get into this. You like the conspiracy theories. You like the fear factor of it. You like, you know, whatever. And, uh, and, and I'm going to burst your bubble today because 
I, I don't think it's actually as scary as you might think. Actually, in some ways, it might be scarier. Uh, I think when we kind of, uh, you know, turn it into fiction and myth and everything else, we rob it of its power in some way. Uh, and so, so let's just kind of dive in and see what's going on here. Uh, there's a lot to unpack. So Revelation chapter 12, as usual, I'm going to read from my page that I can actually read, uh, that I've blown up giant. And um, Revelation chapter 12, we're going to skip around a little bit. Uh, we're going to read most of 12 through 14, but not all. I'll, I'll kind of fill you in on the gaps that I skipped through. Um, so we'll start with verse 1 of chapter 12. It says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman <clears throat> clothed with the sun, with uh, the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving, giving birth. All right. So as we dive into the different symbols that are in this passage, I'm just going to quickly point out what most people think these, these things, uh, you know, again, there are differences of opinion. You're always welcome to disagree with me. I, my feelings won't be hurt. Uh, but, but this is what I think is going on here. The woman that is being portrayed in this passage, I believe is, uh, God's people. God's people, uh, otherwise known as the true Israel or the church, all the people throughout history who have been faithful to God. Some people call them the saints, whatever you want to call that. But God's people here is, is, is the woman. Uh, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. And his tail swept down uh, a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So who's the great red dragon in this passage? We're talking about our enemy, uh, Satan, the enemy of the people of God, the enemy of God himself. Uh, now, before we uh, get, again, I, I want to kind of de-scary the idea of Satan for you a little bit and just say that when we talk about God and when we talk about Satan, we're not talking about equal gods battling against one another. We're talking about a God and a created being uh, um, that God completely owns this punk called Satan. Okay? I mean, he, there's, Satan has nothing on God. And as we're going to, as we dive into this, as we're going to see, he is defeated. Uh, the majority of his power he has been robbed from him. He is still active as we'll get into in just a second, but we're not talking about God's battling it out and who's going to win good or evil. Good has won. Evil has been defeated. Okay. That's where we are. All right. So don't get confused there. So uh, next verse there, she gave birth to a male child. This is Jesus. Okay. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, we talked about last week the, the 1260 days, sometimes called three and a half years, sometimes called three and a half days. Um, um, there's another place in, in Revelation that calls it a time and a times and a half of a time. Uh, so a time, one year, a times, two years, a half a time, half a year, so three and a half years again. So this whole concept of three and a half years or three and a half days or just the number three and a half, basically, I believe, is, 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 is a reference to the fact that if seven is the number of completion and three and a half being half of that means that, uh, that, that Satan will only be allowed to be loose for a period of time, not eternity. He has a definite end to his activity coming up. 
Now, that's all we really need to know about that. You can, you can, you know, argue about, you know, the details of those numbers if you'd like. I just know this. Satan's time in tormenting followers of Jesus Christ will come to an end. Amen? All right. All right. So, uh, and so he is, you know, so basically what's happened with this male child with Jesus is that uh, the, the, the woman, the people of God, basically the movement of God, Israel, you know, this is all goes back to the covenant with Abraham and, and that the uh, Messiah would come from the seed of Abraham and that, all that kind of stuff. But all the people of God, they have given birth, so to speak, to this Messiah figure, Jesus Christ, who has come to earth and then swept back up to uh, the kingdom of heaven. Now, what happens in the next several verses uh, that I'm going to skip through, I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of what happens, is uh, we're told that a great war breaks out in heaven and Satan loses. Satan loses and is cast out completely of heaven. And so when we talk about Satan's activity having an end, it has already ended in the kingdom of heaven. He is completely defeated there. He is floundering around down here just trying to do as much damage as he can before God finally nips it all in the bud. But he has completely defeated, cast out of heaven, and now he will soon be defeated here on earth too. That's kind of what's, what, what's, what's been happening there in the in-between verses. Now, you skip down to verse 17, and it says this, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. I think the rest of her offspring refers to us, rather than all the people of God, the rest of her offspring, I think, refers to us as individual believers. So the Satan, the enemy, he has he, this dragon. He's become furious with this with the woman. He's went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, meaning all of us, and on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right. So um, this is what you need to know about this section: that our enemy is defeated, and he's angry. He's defeated, and he's angry. That's what you, you want to know why there's so much evil, you know, post Jesus Christ, post crucifixion, post resurrection. Why is there still, still so much war and evil and everything else that goes on in this world? Because Satan is angry. He's angry. Now, I, I run the risk. I realize when, when, by teaching about this sort of thing, I run the risk of coming across like a kook. Uh, when you start talking about Satan and that sort of thing. Uh, again, I don't want to give Satan too much authority and power that the Bible certainly doesn't give him. Uh, but what he does is that he stirs up evil. There is a some sort of spiritual, I hate to even personalize him there, but there's some sort of spiritual enemy that we have that stirs up evil in this world and uh, will only be allowed to do it for a season. And someday that season will end. Our enemy works overtime to cripple us spiritually, and I believe also to kill us physically. To kill us physically. I had a revelation a few years ago. Uh, I I shouldn't say revelation when we're talking about revelation. I had a moment, an aha moment, (laughs) a few years ago, um, where, you know, several years ago, I was was diagnosed with diabetes, and if if you if you ever lived around a diabetic or you are a diabetic, you know it's just a, a huge pain in the backside to maintain the lifestyle that you have to maintain to, to remain healthy. And, and, uh, and I went through a period of time where I was, was hardly even trying at all. And then I just had this, again, kind of aha moment, uh, light bulb moment where I realized that 
I think part of what Satan is doing in my life personally is trying to cut my life and my ministry short to limit what God wants to do through me. And so that just made me mad. And I was like, okay, I'm actually going to try now. I'm going to try now just because I hate Satan and I feel like kicking him in the butt. And so, so, so that, that, so I, you know, I believe that Satan is actively out there, not only trying to crush us spiritually, but to crush us physically as well. And, and we should be watchful about that. All right, let's keep going. Revelation chapter 13, start with verse one says this. And I saw a beast, Uh Oh, beast. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Uh, so this is what I think is going on here with the beast. There, is, uh, there are a lot of people, Now I'm, I'm going to unpack this further in just a second. I'm just going to break it down simple right now. There are a lot of people who will identify this beast as some ultimate antichrist. This is Damien from the Omen, right? This is, this is, this is the antichrist, you know, capital T, capital A, the antichrist. And uh, I think that's actually a mistaken uh, way to look at this, and I'll, and I'll tell you why in just a second. So we have this beast rising out of the sea, ten horns with blasphemous names on his head. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. All right? I think this beast is actually, well, I think in this context, uh, uh, historically, the beast that's being talked about here in this context is Rome, is Rome. It's this great, powerful entity that has been given the power to persecute the churches. And now, let me, now there are some people who, who are in a camp that say Revelation should be read historically. And there are some people in a camp that say Revelation should be read as future things that will happen that we need to look out for. And I actually think both camps are wrong. I think it's both. I think it's both. I think this beast represents powerful um, bodies, whether they're governments or whatever else that have existed all throughout history that try to crush God's people. And as John is saying to his people, uh, to, to the people that he's writing to, to the churches that he's writing to, watch out. This is Rome that I'm talking about. He's using very cryptic language, you know, because they're in enemy territory, so to speak, using this cryptic language. He's not only telling them to watch out for Rome in the way that she will abuse them and persecute them and that sort of thing, but eventually be defeated. I think he's also telling us to watch out for the, the other beasts that crop up in our times and have cropped up at times all throughout history. You could look at the Nazis. You could look at any number of different other. There are some people that would say today that you could look at America. I know that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I'm not saying that myself. I'm just saying there's some people that believe that. But we have to be watchful for these powerful entities that rise up and persecute the church. When he talks about the blasphemous names that have been written on its head, you're talking about... Uh, uh, um, especially in the case of Rome, uh, who would call Caesar their king of kings, their lord of lords, their savior. On the money with Caesar's head on it was written son of God. These, this is the de- very definition of blasphemy, right? And so, so just this idea that, that these, these things will try to usurp God's authority, steal worship that belongs to him and redirect it towards themselves. That's what we're looking at, all right? So let's keep going. Um, 
Here's another very, very obvious reference to Rome. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This idea of he had a mortal wound, in other words, a deadly wound, and, but it seemed to have been healed. This is what happened. Uh, probably the greatest of all the Caesars, arguably the greatest of all the Caesars, was, was a guy named Nero. And uh, he was uh, killed in A.D. 69. Shortly after his death, there began to be rumors uh, started floating around the empire that that Caesar was alive again, that he had kind of risen from the dead, so to speak, and would manifest himself in in, in another way. And so all these other kind of would-be Caesars started cropping up, trying to say that I'm I'm the next Nero. I'm the guy. I'm the guy. And eventually, you know, these these emperors uh, took the throne. And Rome, just when Rome looked like it was about to be crushed with the death of Caesar, became more powerful than ever. I think this is a very, very direct reference from John to people that would know what he was talking talking about in this situation. Now, again, not saying that we're, when we talk about the beast, we're only talking about Rome. I'm saying Rome is an example of what the beast looks like and has looked like all throughout history. All right. And then, um, so, and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. There's that three and a half again. It opened the mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. And also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The authority and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb was slain. Now listen to this part. This is one of those kind of asides, kind of nudge-nudge moments that, that John puts in his book of Revelation. He says this, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Here it comes. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now John tells about this great beast that I think is embodied in Rome at this moment, at this particular moment in history, rising up that will do the work of Satan in terms of persecuting the people of God. But he says, he doesn't say, don't worry though, everything's going to be just fine. What he says is, some of you are going to be beaten. Some of you are going to be jailed. Some of you are going to be killed. Endure anyway. Endure anyway. This is going to happen. And we've talked about reasons why this have to ha- has to have to happen in previous weeks in terms of it being a witness to, to the rest of the world and, and, and them seeing how important our faith to, is to us and how faithful we'll be to, to our God and our Savior, and all that kind of stuff. But this stuff is going to happen. Endure anyway. Don't lose heart. So this is what the point I want you to get from this, this first section of chapter 13. We need to be watchful for antichrist powers who try to steal God's glory. Okay? Now, I'm not talking antichrist in the, in the terms of a singular person who will rule over the world and, you know, battle the forces of good. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about all throughout history there have been these anti-Christian, anti-Christ powers that rise up and we need to be watchful for them. Don't be naive here. Now, that word anti-Christ, by the way, is never used in the book of Revelation. You won't find it in the book of Revelation. In fact, you'll find it four times in the Bible, three times in the, the John's letter that we call first, first John and one time in John's letter that we call second John. 
And every time, all four of those times that word antichrist is used, it's never used to refer to some massive, evil, singular figure that will rise up. Instead, it's, re- it's always referred to plurally. You have these deceivers that rise up, these antichrists. Be watchful for them. Be watchful of them. So you can, you can lay to bed the Hollywood myth that Damien's going to rise up and rule over the world and all that kind of stuff. That's not what we're looking at. That's not really the, 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 the way Scripture portrays this concept of antichrist. It's just this general spirit of antichrist that, that will rise up from time to time and maybe perpetually as people try to squash the movement of God. All right? We're not looking for this singular person. Instead, we need to look for these influencers who would try to misdirect our worship, who would say, I know you're worshiping this person, but you now have to worship this person, this body of power, whatever that looks like. Okay? We just need to be watchful for that sort of thing. Now, the last part of Revelation 13, we get another beast. And it says this, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. So it kind of refers it to, to like a lamb, smaller, maybe less powerful type of beast is what we're looking at here. And it exercises all the authority of the first beast in, the presence, in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making uh, fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Now, when we, when we talk about this, this uh, second beast that we're looking at, this maybe kind of smaller, less significant beast, I believe what's taking place here and what John's referring to is the local authorities, say the, the Roman governors and places that were given power over certain districts and certain countries and certain cities who carry out the, uh, the will of Rome itself uh, or, or the beast itself, and, 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 and make sure that everybody is directing their worship towards the first beast. Okay, there are these, now these, these could be political figures, these could be religious figures. The, the fastest, we talked about before in the first century, the fastest growing religion in the world actually wasn't Christianity. The fastest growing religion in the world was the worship of the emperor. And this is the context in which these Christians live, where all around them, temples are being raised up to worship Caesar. Every major Roman city, there was another temple that went up to, to worship Caesar. And sometimes these local provincial governors uh, would, would put these statues of Caesar that people would worship in these temples. And they would do these tricks with them where they would make them cry or they would make them bleed or they would make them, you know, you know some, some way make them speak, you know, through some sort of complicated system. And it was all this kind of trickery that was going on. And just as, this is John going, don't be fooled by this. This is what they do. This is what they do. And um, so it says, uh, where I lost my place. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And also... It causes, now this is a part that maybe some of you are familiar with if you know much about Revelation. Also, it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, 
That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. John's doing another little aside here. Like, try to, you, know, you guys know what I'm talking about is what he's saying. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For it's the number of a man and his number is 666. All right? This is where we get the whole 666 thing from. All right? Now, I... Um, what you may not know about me is that when I was in, uh, uh, attending Bible college, uh, I became an, an expert on the numerology of the beast. And there's some hidden stuff in here that I want to share with you. Don't try this at home. You have to have gone to school like me to, to get this stuff. And so, uh, so, so let's go through some of the, the, the numerology of the beast here. So first, we all know 666 is the number of the beast. What you may not know is that 667, that's the neighbor of the beast. All right, that's the neighbor of the beast. So DC, here we go, DC, LXVI, that's the Roman numeral of the beast. Uh, and, and, and then even beyond that, if you go to 1666, that would be the area code of the beast. Uh, also, 00666, that's the zip code of the beast. Now, this one, you've got to study hard to find this one. 665.99, that's the retail price of the beast. You may not know that. Uh, but... Even if you dig in even deeper, you'll find that $656.66, that's the Walmart price of the beast. So, you know, even the beast, he's rolling back prices all day long, all right? All right, then we got 666 degrees Fahrenheit. That would be the oven temperature of roast beast, in case you're curious about that. 666K, that would be, of course, the retirement plan of the beast. And then, and then the most, the, my favorite one that I found is that this one, six, uh, what was that number again? Of course, that's the number of the blonde beast, okay? And, ah, yeah, see what I did there? All right, some of you guys are sitting there going, I think I might know the blonde beast, actually. Uh, so, yeah, all right, so, so no, it's just, just a little funny there. But, but so, uh, here's the thing, the reason I, I did that is, is, is because I'm an idiot. And because, um, is because when we're talking about, this, you know, this, this number, th- th- this number has put so much fear into people. It's absolutely insane. It's absolutely insane. All right. Now, again, as, as we're talking about the entire book of revelation and all of its rich symbolic language, and especially when you're talking about numbers, numbers are always very, very, very symbolic. I don't think what we're looking for here is a, is a literal number 666 that will be literally marked on people's hands and heads. That's not what, you know, a few, few chapters early, earlier, we heard God mark his people uh, in such a way as to set them apart. And he gave them a mark on their heads and on their hands. And just as that was not a literal mark that we would wear as followers of his, I don't think this is a literal Mark either that we need to be super watchful. I know some of some people have said, you know, it's going to be, you know, your visa cards. That's the sign of the beast or your, you know, you're going to have a barcode on your head or something like that. That's a sign of the beast. And, they, you know, they just make up all kinds of weird and wild stuff. And I, and I think basically it, what is actually going on here is this, that when he says that uh, they're given this mark so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. I think what he's, he's saying here is that living in this empire, so to speak, of the beast, whether it's your first century Christian living in Rome or whether we're, you know, current day Christians living in whatever evil empire might exist today, you need to be constantly aware that there will, people, evil will go to elaborate plans to divide your affections and divide your worship. They will hit you where it hurts. They'll hit you in your pocketbook. They'll hit you in the things that make you comfortable. They'll hit you in in, in those kinds of ways. And you need to be so committed, so 
devoted to Jesus Christ that you're not swayed by these kind of tactics that people will use from time to time. The point is this. We need to pray for discernment to recognize unfaithful compromises. We need to pray for discernment to recognize unfaithful compromises. And what I mean is this, that there will, you will be constantly throughout your life uh, presented with certain choices that will suddenly, your intent will kind of shoot up and you'll go, I wonder if I should do this thing. Uh, maybe you start trying to justify it. It's really not that big of a deal. It's not that big. You know, it's, I know, you know, technically it might go against something in God's word, but it's just, at the end of the day, it's not that big of a deal. Let me tell you what it looked like in first century. It looked like this. You had people asking themselves, so does it count as a compromise if I use these coins, this money that has the image of Caesar printed on it and big, bold letters right above it? that say son of God. Is that me compromising my faith if I buy into a system and use money that proclaims somebody else as the son of God when I know who the real and true and only son of God is? Would that be a compromise? Maybe they would, they would ask themselves occasionally too, well, what, if I, what if I, you know, set up booths and sell things like food and items and stuff like that on the side of the road? And what if I set up in a place where I know a lot of people are going to be marching by because they're on their way to some festival at some temple of some false god is it wrong for me to make money off of other people who are worshiping some other false god? Is that, is that wrong? Is that a compromise? I'm not quite sure. Or, or what if I was to buy a side of beef that I knew just that morning had been offered as sacrifice to a false god? They, 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 they cut the price down. They make it super cheap and affordable. I'm just trying to feed my family. Is it wrong? Is, is that wrong? And, and Paul answers a lot of these questions in, in his writings, and, and we can read those. But these are the kinds of compromising situations that first century Christians were constantly being presented with. So what do those compromises look for us? I think maybe it's, you know, we're asking ourselves, does it, does it count as compromise if, if I buy a newspaper maybe that openly mocks our faith or openly promotes sinful lifestyles, even if I really only want to read it for the sports page? Is it a compromise to give that entity my money? Does it compromise my faith in any way? Or what about, is it a compromise for me to vote for a presidential candidate that I think would be a good president, but they've got some stances. They've got a couple of issues that are very clearly against God's words. Is that a compromise of my faith? I don't, I don't know. Is it? What about... You know, what, what, is it wrong for me to buy products for a, from a company that I know, maybe this is some sort of foreign company, maybe not, but I know the leaders of this company are active participants of another faith, and they give a huge part of their profits to promote that other faith. Is it wrong for me to buy those products, or is it not a big deal? What if I've got a shop, and I, I, is it wrong for me to sell, say, like, silver and black ribbons when I know Raiders fans are probably going to use them for something. Is that wrong? <laughs> I did it. I did it. All right. <laughs> that was for Ron. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. Is, uh, you know so, so these are the kinds of compromises that we have to think through. And, and, and here's, the guy, here's the thing, guys. I don't have all the answers to those questions. Can, you know who does have the answers? Jesus has the answers. And, and, and this is what I would challenge you to do. Go to him prayerfully about these things that you think might compromise your faith. These kind of symbolic 666s that crop up in our life from time, time to time that cause us to compromise, compromise our devotion to Christ. 
Go to Christ about that. Go to him in prayer and ask, is, is this a compromise? Go prayerfully about that. Go to people that uh, are spiritual leaders of you in your life. Ask for guidance. Ask for wisdom. But, but it's, I think what, what it's, what's the purpose here is that we're supposed to be watchful for these things. We're supposed to, that, that some of them actually do matter, and we should be watchful for them. All right, let's look at the last chapter here, Revelation chapter 14. The last chapter this week, anyway. Uh, Revelation chapter 14. So uh, let me kind of uh, um, um, summarize what happens in the first several verses. What, what we're told is that um, we give this image of the 144,000 that we've talked about before, which just was a representative number of all of God's people. All of God's people are standing on a hill with the Lamb, with Jesus Christ. They're standing there in power and in unity and in purity. There's, there's language given that, that talks about purity, uh, possibly uh, maybe prepared for battle. There's kind of some kind of allusions to, to that, it kind of assembled as an army, possibly. And then two angels come and give a choice. One angel gives a choice of the gospel, and the other angel gives a choice of judgment. The gospel or judgment. This one last choice is given to everybody who is not included in that number of all God's people. Will you embrace the gospel, or will you see judgment? And this is where we pick it up now. i start in verse 14. Then I looked... And behold, a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap for the hour to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Let me stop it here just a second like this, because I think I got some unraveling to do in your heads here. Um, it's really easy to look at this, this, uh, this figure with this sickle and he's told to kind of reap the earth. And uh, immediately again, especially since we're in October, immediately the first image that pops to our mind is kind of this uh, grim reaper type of figure. This, this death is coming and he's going to reap. And especially there's some kind of uh, colorful language coming here in just a second. And I actually think that's a mistake to look at it that way. Uh, every other place in the scripture, when a harvest is talked about, it's always talked about joyfully, joyfully. The harvest is always represented as something that is a good thing. In fact, you, you, ideally, you're not harvest, harvesting horrible things. You're harvesting good things, good fruit, good vegetables, good grains that will provide for you and your, for your family. And when you're looking for a good harvest and that sort of thing. And so I don't think the idea here is that God is coming with this great judgment. In fact, there's some bloody language coming up, and we'll read it in just a second. But I don't think the image is that God is coming with this great judgment, sending this grim reaper to just slash bodies and heads. And you know, that, that's, not, that's not what's happened here. I think it's a, a harvest that just, as, as the Scripture actually says, um, swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. I think it's everybody. I think it's, it, it's, the, it's the harvest of all mankind, of all humankind. In fact, Jesus told a parable, a parable uh, about uh, a harvest that would happen. It was called the parable of the wheat and the tares. Does anybody remember this parable? Where Jesus says there's, there's a man who planted a great field and he planted a bunch of wheat. And an enemy snuck in at night and planted tares or weeds in the midst of all that wheat so that the weeds grew up with the wheat and basically ruined the crop. And so the workers of that field came to the, the landowner and said, what do we need to do? Do you want us to just kind of try to pick out all the weeds? And, and he says, no, no, no. If you try to do that, then you'll end up picking out the good stuff too. Just let it all grow up together and we'll harvest it all together and then we'll sort it out. I think that's actually the kind of image that's being portrayed here in this harvest passage that everybody's going to be harvested, but 
you still have this choice. Are you going to choose gospel or are you going to choose judgment? Everybody's going to be gathered uh, to, to, to God and eventually recognize that God is the king of the universe, the God of all the universe. Are you going to choose gospel or are you going to choose judgment? That's kind of what's happening here. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven. And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into a great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. And a stadia, 1,600 stadia is about 180 miles. So as high as a horse's bridle for 180, that's a lot of blood, right? Can we agree that's a lot of blood? Um, and so, so again, I think to go with what I just talked about, I don't think this is some sort of bloody image of judgment. In fact, I think uh, while, while the wicked will be judged, part of that that's going through the wine press is also... Those who have been faithful to God, maybe the blood of the martyrs, even those who have given their life willingly for the cause of Christ. But the point is, is that God will sort them all out. God will sort them all out. Now, as we close this morning, this is the question that I think this particular passage is, is, is begging for us to ask. And it's this question. Who is your savior? Who is your savior? Are you going to place your hope for salvation in Jesus Christ? Or are you going to place your hope for salvation in governments, in political heroes, in uh, businesses, in products, in wealth, in your savings, in your career, in your financial stability, in your family? Are you going to make those things your savior? Or are you going to finally once and for all declare that Jesus Christ is my savior? That's the question that we're all forced to wrestle with. It's a big question. It's a big question. So if you're a Christian in the room, this is what I want you to ask yourself. Are you choosing Jesus or are you choosing comfort or convenience or the path of least resistance? Because following Jesus is awesome. It's wonderful. But the Bible never tells us it's easy. Never says it's easy. And there will be sacrifices. You will have to make sacrifices in your life to follow Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, will you choose life in Christ or, you will, or will you choose the gods of this world or the God that you look at in the mirror every morning called by your own name? Are you going to worship something else? Are you going to worship your own desires and your own rebellion against God? Or are you going to choose Jesus? These are the questions that you have to grab. I can't answer that question for you. I can't. I wish I could. I wish I could but I can't. What I know is that since I've been faithful to Jesus, he's never been unfaithful to me. In fact, when I'm unfaithful to him, he's still faithful to me. He's a good God. He's a good savior. He's the only one that deserves the title of savior. I want to challenge you to once and for all decide Jesus Christ is my savior. I'll stand with him. Because what these passages shows us is that there are sides to be picked, and you better pick the right side. You better pick the right side.
Let's close with our, our prayer that Jesus taught us that we've been praying every week of this series. It's just got revelation written all over it. Matthew chapter six says this, say it with me. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father God, we love you. And we proclaim you as the one and only true God. You are holy. You are worthy of our praise. Forgive us when we allow other um, things, other people, other entities to rob you of that praise. Um, Help us to have a singular focus on you. Help us to see the world through the eyes of scripture, not just through the eyes of whatever is comfortable or easy for us. Uh, God, help us to see clearly those who would rise up and try to steal your glory. Help us to see them for what they are. We love you. We thank you for your word again this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Amen.